Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Welcome to this podcast from NHS Employers. I'm Karen Charman and I'm the Director of Engagement at NHS Employers. Today we're going to be looking at the leadership challenge facing the NHS and with me I have Dean Royals, NHS Employers Chief Exec and Lord Victor Adebowali, Chief Executive of Turning Point. Victor is also a crossbench member of the House of Lords and a non-executive director at NHS England. So Dean and Victor, thanks for joining me today um, and I wonder, starting with Victor, whether you could tell us a bit about yourself um, including um, your current role and any other roles which will be interesting. Current roles. Yeah, I'm one of these people. Actually, I'm, my current role, the most important thing I do is Chief Executive Turning Point, um, which provides health and social care organisation. Well, it's not the most important thing I do. Actually, the most important thing I do is wife and husband, I think. Or husband <laughs> and father. Why did I say wife? Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, the most important thing I do is, 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 is help run Turning Point, which is health and social care um, services to, I don't know, 100,000 people or something, 250 locations, about 3,000 staff, mental health, learning disabilities, substance misuse, primary care, community commissioning, all points in between. Everything else kind of helps me do that better, um, but there are some things that I really enjoy doing, um, NHS England non-exec, one of them. Um, and actually I set up a little thing called Leadership in Mind because I'm interested in leadership a while ago. Thank you. I think that just about does it. That's good. I guess a bit like um, Victor, really. I, I've uh, worked in the NHS most of my uh, career, mostly in uh, HR, but I started in uh, local authority. And uh, like Victor, I'm a, uh, I'm a husband, a father, and uh, now a grandfather oh. too. So uh, just when I thought I'd got rid of some of the small kids in the house, uh, more, more soon to, uh, uh, soon to appear. <laughs> Like a oh, that's very kind of you, yes. <laughs> um, but I, I first, uh, actually, in, in terms of uh, leadership, I, uh, I first started thinking about leadership when I heard Victor years and years ago talking on a panel event about leadership. And that was the first time uh, that I'd heard a panel talking about leadership, what it meant, values, rather than something that you do, but Ooh. something that someone could express. So that's how I uh, uh, come to be doing this podcast now and want to uh, be talking about it with Victor. Oh, wow. Well, that's very, that's, um, I'm humbled. Thank you. Yeah. That's and, uh, interesting. Some of those areas are exactly what we, we want to return to as, as part of this conversation. But um, let's start with the sort of over, overall picture. Um, and... We talk about the leadership challenge facing uh, the NHS. How, how would you describe that challenge and, and how optimistic are you that we've got the skills to face it? Those are, those are big questions. <laughs> Actually, it's not so much a leadership challenge. I, the more I think about this, the more I, I think about it, not just in terms of leadership, it's, it's, it's more a skills challenge than it is a leadership one. Um, leadership's part of the skill set, I reckon, that's, that's necessary to recognise if we're going to if we're going to actually survive as a, as a service, I think it's that important. But the skill set is more to do with how we understand organisations. So what I see up until recently, very recently, um, and it's, and it's well, at the foothills, which worries me, is the idea that organisations exist in a kind of vacuum and that all the interactions are transactional and that people are like robots and that all you need is firm grip <laughs> usually by a usually by a bloke, and and everything's going to be all right. 
and and it, the, the, you know sort of a, a toss up between uh, grip, uh, transaction, and politics, and everything will be okay. The truth is that organisations are dynamic organisms, systems that require a highly a high level of sophisticated thinking about the dynamic. Now that is a skill and, a, and an approach and a theoretical frame which some people get because actually they've been trained to get it um, and um, have a valence to it and others don't get. What worries me is that too few get it and too many don't get it and don't respect it and think of it as mumbo jumbo, psycho babble or for the girls. Um, and that's terrifying, frankly. Um, so I think there's a massive skills, knowledge deficit on top of which any, in my view, any, any credible leader in the NHS needs to understand in order to be a leader that process, that dynamic, that stuff in order to lead. I mean, I guess I'll say it in a, uh, in a similar way, really. I'm, I mean, I think we've been very good in the NHS talking about uh, sort of changing leadership styles uh, over a period of time and uh, you know the Leadership Academy does some uh, great stuff and there's got the new programs now like the the sort of Nye uh, Bevan and the Mary Seacole Awards etc mm. but I think maybe we haven't given enough uh, attention in terms of uh, leadership to what the leadership task is uh, so we talk about the leadership style that we need which is something yeah. moving from some form of autocratic uh, you know military command and control yeah. style leadership to something that's sort of more engaging and collaborative but I don't think we've been clear enough with our leaders what it is that we want them to do uh, so we put them into organizations as Victor was saying, and then uh, I, I think that we, we, we build them up to save the organisation in some way, uh, when we should be saying that, look, the leadership task here is in a modern changing NHS is how do you, as chairman, chief executive, director team, get the best possible services for people in your local community, yeah. not necessarily just focusing on saving the organisation you happen to be yeah. working in. And I think if we can do that, then we can try that sort of collaborative, engaging leadership style and sort of open up the challenge a bit more. So true. I, I, I think, you know, in what you're saying, that there, is, there is built in the idea of, of not just leadership, but to to use words out of the idea of followership, you know, the idea that actually the understanding um, where the tyres hit tarmac, which is always at the front line, yeah. is, is really key and, and this idea of leadership alignment and values alignment really, really critical. And I think there is this fear, we, we have across public sector actually, but certainly the NHS, there is this tendency to focus on the survival of the organisation, but but forget the purpose. So what is the purpose here becomes uh, uh, lost. And I understand that because we're, we're involved in a lot of generating of, of fear, which, which drives some odd behaviours. But un ultimately, leadership must be about something bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we're in trouble. Yeah. I, I agree. And it, and it is something me that um, HR... Uh, directors, HR departments could focus on. I mean, this is a this is a, a sort of HR issue. I've I've been to these sorts of events. I was talking about uh, one earlier with uh, uh, with Victor, but uh, sometimes you get a sort of uh, a sort of an American um, talking about some sort of leadership uh, challenge, and they'll talk about the uh, the organisation going through some crisis or another, and the the chief executive leads, and the board's talking about you know who they're going to get to lead the organisation, who they're going to poach, and then you hear them saying, and th this is when the HR department came in, and the HR director banged the table and said, look, before we talk about who. Let's talk about what, what's the task. And I think that really as a, as a HR function in the NHS, we should be doing that a bit more at recruitment time, is banging the table and saying before we talk about style or who or who we're going to get, let, let's be clear.
clear of the task that we want them to do and I, get agreement on that. I do think that's true. I, I do wonder about HR directors. I think that they are in a very powerful position, but also in a very weak one in an odd kind of way. You know, um, they're often perceived as... Um, the sweepers. <laughs> so everyone else makes a mess and HR come up and sweep it up. Yeah, welcome and, to our world. And, 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 <laughs> you know, they are, they're often incredibly resilient. I mean, they have to be. But actually, what we're talking about is, is I see very much the job of the chief exec and the leadership and the chair. And, and HR directors have a role to play in kind of uh, almost ship's council, uh, to use an analogy, you know, the idea that you have someone who actually understands or has the skills necessary to bring to attention um, what's happening in the system. Um, and the chief exec's job is to ensure that they're, they're, they're on receive um, and can get that. But actually, I think it's a core skill. I remember there, there, there was a, this move, and there still is a move, to appoint uh, chief execs with finance qualifications. If you, I don't know what the, what the valence of all the chief execs are, but there's always the idea that if you appoint somebody as an accountant, everything will be all right, and it may, may well be true. But it's, in my view, and, and, I think... I think gone, those days are actually pro it's proving to be not just in health but in organisations generally it's proving to be slightly well questionable. Um, so I would say that it's not just an HR director's job; it's an organisation's job. Therefore, it's the leadership's job to, to get this stuff and to understand it and struggle with it. Um, to which HR has a huge contribution to make. I mean, they're, they're often the people that really see it. You mentioned there about the, 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 the finance skills, but let, let's have a look at some of these, these other skills. Because you talk about being ready for the task, and the, the task is always changing. That's one of the environments mm -hmm. we live in. And, and we talked about sort of skills and, and training for, yeah. for the leadership, and how, how do you get somebody who, who gets it? And yeah. One of the, the, the points that's been put forward through some of the research is that leaders need to be constantly learning yeah. and improving their skills and capabilities. And that's really challenging when everybody's so busy. Um, and I just wondered, because the, the research that, that I was looking to in getting ready for today was that actually there are profound learning experiences mm -hmm. in your life as a leader yep. that actually make the difference. Yep. And make you. I wonder if either of you have got any examples of those times when you've My had that... Life, I think, to be honest, <laughs> everything. <laughs> this, is, this, is, um, this is where people get scared, because at some point, leadership engages with who you are so I'm a big fan of Manfred Ketz de Vries who's um, writes on this stuff and people think he's a bit weird and he probably is but um, the fact of the matter is that you 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 are what you lead in a sense and this this is this is a blinding glimpse of the obvious you know all relationships are <laughs> about being present who you are whether you like it or not the difference is I think leaders have to be more aware of, of their impact I guess um, which I just think is kind of really difficult but necessary if you're going to do it properly, really. So I, th I think there's some... And that's why, it's, that's why people avoid it. I don't blame them for doing so. But the, the consequences of avoiding it seems to, seem to be apparent <laughs> and all around us. So, you know, it's just something that needs, needs to happen. I mean, the learning stuff, personally... Um, I, I can't, there are so many incidents and so many points of learning for me that it's difficult to think of one that um, uh, that that shines. But uh, you know, I I've learnt 
To be honest with you, I've learned more from bad leaders than from good. <laughs> One's very conscious when you're in a situation that's been badly led because generally you know you have a sense of the wrongness of it. <laughs> People know it. The difference is, so the ability to speak it or do something about it is the thing that's, that, that kind of stops change from happening, you know? Um, so I'm not going to, you know name names, but I have been in situations where you can see a slow car crash happening in front of you. Um, some of the stuff around targets actually was, was strikes me as, you know, you could see that there's nothing wrong with targets, but it's a bit like bringing a chisel for everything. You know, you, <laughs> sooner or later the instrument gets blunt and it just becomes a blunt instrument. Um, uh, and you could see that that was going to end in some kind of disaster because people will always hit the target, but they'll miss the point, you know? <laughs> and which is what happened. <laughs> so you can see. I'm not, I just wondered, Dean, just picking up some of our earlier conversation, when you see, when you're experiencing that bad leadership, is that when HRD should take that role as the ship's council? Is that where a strong HRD can make a difference? I, I think absolutely, and it's where it, where it can also take on that sort of uh, coaching role uh, as well. I mean, I, I can remember a sort of a particular learning experience for me, which is um, when, when I got my first team leader's job. So I worked in a benefits office and was oh, doing all yeah, this stuff in terms of processing, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, processing uh, application forms. And uh, I, I got a, a temporary promotion. And so I'd been promoted above the people that I was working with. And there was one particular guy that everyone always complained about. He was always in late and he was sort of leaving yeah. early and he was sort of a bit lazy. And everyone around the edges was always sort of talking about it. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is, this is something I'm now going to have to address, yeah. uh, sort of going over. So I, I thought, well, you know, as I'm you know, being promoted, this is a, a sort of opportunity yes. to show that you can yeah. deal with some uh, difficult issues. And uh, I, you know, uh, had a conversation and said yeah. to this guy about needing to uh, uh, make sure he got his sort of acting order. And then, of course, all around the office was what a terrible boss Dean was, you know, picking on poor old uh, so-and-so yeah. because, uh, you know, it had, uh, it had gone to his uh, head. And it was one, one of those sorts of things, really, where... Um, you know, sort of recognise that being a leader isn't about being popular, um, but also sort of recognising that just doing what everyone, you know, complains about also isn't going to uh, address the issue for you. And uh, and that's where I sort of uh, got to that sort of issue, really, about the difference between being liked and respected. So I think people quite like the idea that I'd done something about it. Um, but, uh, I you know. I Good God, that just resonates with me so much. I remember um, when I worked in uh, well, some of my early jobs in housing, um, back in the day, I'm much older than I look, and um, I used to work for collectives. Remember collectives? I, yes. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be boss. <laughs> actually, I was quite keen on changing them into hierarchies, which went against the grain, believe me. And um, I, I guess it's not... I realised that um, actually, you know, the problem with, with collectives and, and hierarchies is actually about power. And, 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 and the th reason why hierarchies kind of work is that people have an idea of where the power is and, and who owns it, and it's much easier. And I realised that um, leadership was, A, in a sense, necessarily lonely because of what you've just said. You know, it's not about being popular, um, and it's not about being unpopular. It's about doing the right thing. And, yeah. and, and um, I realised that, and I also realised that, that power, you know, in systems, in, in organisations is incredible, you know. The, and the core skill of any leader, I think, is particularly in the NHS, um, is about change. Is is the core skill is understanding change because we live in this mythical world in which everybody thinks that change is not this kind of stability. You reach this point yeah. where 
actually everything's you'll never need to change again and that's a complete organizations are always changing so the, the skill the core skill is get change <laughs> and, and HR has a role I think the coaching thing is is quite key yeah. I mean, what, one of the areas that you, you've both been touching on it without actually saying it is, is around values and working, mm. you know, with um, values that, you know, demonstrating those values. I mean, one of the, the quotes from your, your article uh, in the, the HSJ last November was the fallacy that urgency demands actions, not values. Mm. The, the, the truth mm. is, is actually the opposite. Mm. And, and Dean, your, your example was almost working with an out-of-date out set of values. The, mm. the values that were within that team that you were trying to manage were were out of date and you were trying to display it display another how 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 does leadership shape those values and and demonstrate those mm. values oh well that's uh that's a tricky one i mean i think in the article what i was trying to say really was that you know the the, the pragmatist listening to this podcast will say what the hell does he mean you know if you've got if you've got an urgent situation sitting around and pontificating about values isn't <laughs> really gonna, isn't going to help and i'm I, i'd probably agree with them but at times when uh, action is is necessary however if you look at every disaster that's occurred in the last few years in the nhs um you will see that the actions that have occurred in response to a perceived emergency have been valueless. <laughs> so if you look at, at mid-staffs, the one thing that you will learn is that there was a sense of crisis, but there wasn't a sense of values. If there had have been, the response to that sense of crisis would have been very different, actually. <laughs> so uh, that's what I mean, that, that, you, that the, you, the values um, have to be the, the compass by which you navigate anything, really, because once you lose sight of values, it's very easy to lose sight of purpose, and then you're in, you, you, you're reacting yeah. <laughs> rather than leading, um, uh, and that's that's unhelpful. So it's quite hard to explain because values seem like soft. All this seems like soft skills. It's odd, isn't it? How these soft skills are really hard, but but without a clear set of values. Um, that are aligned and that are, are clear, and I struggle with this in my own organisation, I wouldn't want to think that it's, then you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, you are in trouble because, um, first of all, the perception of crisis is something which organisations veer from, often appear to be veering from crisis to crisis, <laughs> when in fact they're not, they're just, what's the word, hyperactive in of themselves. There's no crisis, it's just the way they are. Um, and that that often leads to an abandonment of values and value. <laughs> um, and you find that organisations have a clear set of values, that the values are aligned from the top to the bottom, are often much calmer places in which, you know, crisis is, is perceived to be something which happens very rarely. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, the difference between episodic and continuous change and people accept that it's so our values are i think are really really critical and leaders have an absolutely crucial role to play in establishing what they are no, I, I i agree with victor really and it's uh, going back to one of the things i was saying earlier about the sort of uh, change in in sort of uh, leadership style from a sort of uh, autocratic command and control type of arrangement where, where I think you you know 40 50 60 years ago you could get into sort of a you know the change cycle dealing with a period of change a period of stability period of change period of uh, stability and I think that uh, not only generationally 
as that um, desire to a, a different leadership style shifted. Uh, but also the environment we're working in means that it's no longer uh, appropriate. So we do live at a time of a perpetual unrest. And the one thing that's going to be constant through a time of perpetual unrest is the, the values of the leaders, the values of the organisation, that people can see in uncertainty some sort of sense of direction or sort of ownership or stability in the way that the organisation is uh, is responding to that. And it, and it is one of the things I think that we uh, we struggle with because uh, you get sort of grown up in this uh, sort of uh, almost like an emotionless vacuum. Yes. You should sort of be leaders that can stand beyond yeah. uh, all of that. And uh, And yet what I find is... Um, you know, responding to the things that make me happy is making sure I'm, I'm sort of letting people know that's making me happy or the thing that saddened me or, or disappoint me, that that becomes clear and evident and you're taking uh, decisions on that basis because, um, because that's where your values are sort of playing out uh, in there. And I think if you like that, then over time people get to see a consistency of leaders, not that you're the same all the time, but they recognise that your values in certain circumstances are the same all the time, you know, that you, that you can be uh, disappointed and upset by events, not lacking emotion in an event as being consistent, that, you know, they, they, they see the person for uh, who they are. And I think that that's the, the really important thing. And as, as I was noticing, yeah. Victor, you, you, uh, you, you put a uh, article on Twitter this morning on the independent about women <laughs> leaders. And this is this thing about sort of, you know, how do we get that right in terms of that balancing yeah. uh, leadership issue around sort of uh, uh, gender and the diversity that we've got, not, not to have more women for women's sake, but because it brings a different sort of approach to decision making. Well, I, I put that article on there. I think I put that article on there because we do have a problem in the NHS in particular, and it does relate to the idea of what kind of leaders appear to be acceptable. Um, and it is it is quite interesting um, that uh, the NHS has a really clear perception that its leaders have to be white and male. And this is a very, I think it's, my hypothesis would be that it's aligned to a very Western view um, of, of the system and the leadership and the illusion that such leadership creates stability. It reminds me when I used to work for local government and there was a chap called, uh, my first job actually, was a chap called Colonel Binney. He'd not been <laughs> in the army for 20 years, but everybody had to call him the Colonel. <laughs> but around him was this wonderful um, illusion, uh, now I reflect on it, of, of total stability because he had grip. Um, but of course, any, everybody who worked in the office realised it was complete and utter chaos <laughs> because he was, he was just not in touch with anything real. Um, and I'm not having a pop at white male leaders in case anybody thinks I am. I'm just saying that that kind of inflexibility breeds in it eventually a, a disassociation with reality. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up question to, to either of you on that? So you've got a leader with a completely out-of-date unrelated set yeah. of values. How can staff influence upwards and influence Ooh, change a, when they find one. themselves with, a, with such a leader? Yeah, I, I, I think it's real. I mean, I think in, a, in, a, in the NHS, as it is now, um, whether you like or dislike the Health and Social Care Act, we now have a national health system. It's no longer one service. So whether... Whether you like it or not, we have distributed leadership, whether we recognise it or not. And I guess my, my response to the question would be that people have to embrace the change. Whether they like it or not is irrelevant. It's actually what is your contribution to patient care? What is your added value here? And 
I guess you have to find others, find the support, and you have to push, you know, you have to push the change that you can make in the patient's interest. Now, I have to say this because it's, because I think it's really obvious, but it's, it's difficult to challenge. I think everybody in the care and health and care business has to, has a re, have to, has a, they have to have a red line over which they will not cross. Because there's no, in a sense, if you're colluding with leadership, which is damaging patient care, then you're not, you're not contributing anything. There comes a point where you have to go with the change, you have to push it, you have to add value in the interests of the patients, and we have systems in place that will help you not cross the line. <laughs> and you know, if that means blowing the whistle, whatever it is, then I think that's what you've got to do. I think it's really, it's really. There is something inherent in health and social care systems about what is your red line. <laughs> and if you have that, I think it's really diff I think it's much easier to deal with, as you put it, in, in appropriate leadership. And indeed develop your own learning around who you are and what you can and should be doing here. That's, that's the best I can do. Thank you. And it's interesting. The uh, I mean, back to harping on about uh, HR again. But you know, I, I guess part of the answer to the question is, is trying to get it right in the first place through having uh, sort of better processes about how we select leaders and as well as the training and development that we we give them. But uh, I guess for me, the one one of the sorts of things about it now is the uh, the call for visibility. So almost every report that we that we now read talks about the importance of leaders being visible, and they often seem to be written by people that sort of assume that this is a case of sort of walking around walking around the shop, walking around the organisation and, and uh, you know, sort of showing yourself. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure how easy that is if you've got an organisation of, say, 15,000 uh, people. I mean, if you walked around constantly, 24 hours a day, you would still wouldn't see anyone because of the shift system and the way that people are, are working. And clearly there's other things that you need to do as well. Or if you take an ambulance service where increasingly we have uh, crews in twos, in, in road laybys waiting for stuff, even if you go to the, the ambulance stations, you won't get to see... Uh, the staff in, in in that way, and uh, this is where I think sort of social media can play an increasing part in that sort of two-way street. So, like it or not, if you're a leader, people are talking about you on social media. So uh, you'll soon find out if your values aren't resonating with the organisation just by what? being active in that uh, yeah. space. And likewise, I think it's a great yeah. opportunity for showing something about who you are, not 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 just on Twitter or something like that, but yeah. increasingly, I think organisations are using things like. Uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, photos and Instagram and, mm. uh, uh, you know, podcasts like this and, uh, um, you know, video casts so that yeah. um, people sort of can connect in a variety of different ways at a variety of different times with people. And that's going to change, I think, the way that we understand what we do, what people think about us, how we respond to those situations. And that feedback is going to be much more instantaneous than being able right. to sit away I from it. Right, but I have to say, this is, this is confession time. I'm rubbish at IT and the social media stuff. I've, I've only just... Um, resorted to Twitter, and I noticed that you've got six thousand followers, <laughs> and I don't know how you do that. I'm, I'm, uh, but, but I, I think there's a difference, and it is quite fundamental, between leadership being visible and leaders being visible. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. It's virtually impossible. I mean, you know, I, well, there's two hundred odd locations at Turning Point, so yeah. and and the, I cannot be there. But leadership is about what happens when the leader isn't in the room. And that's about the presence of leadership, which is much more hard to grasp. Now, uh, the, I think the social media is a litmus test. In other words, if people are, are, are texting you and telling you that what you're saying and what, what the leadership uh, values are isn't being expressed, 
Um, that's important to hear. But I am quite sceptical, a little sceptical of social media because um, it can become a, a, a tyrant. You know, you can have moods. So I noticed there's a Twitter of somebody saying to me, why is Turning Point switchboard off at 5 o'clock and not open weekends and 24-7? Well, the answer is we can't afford it. Not because we're a bad service, we're not a helpline. But then that becomes a, a torrent of people saying, well, why not? You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Actually, I would argue that it's perfectly within our, our values not to. <laughs> but I'd much rather, at turning point, and I think in most organisations, have a, a sense of being, people being able to understand and express leadership values through behaviours. And I would much rather our frontline staff being able to take responsibility for not walking past a quality problem, putting the client first, making it simple for the client, taking into account that they do they have a, a cost, you know, client first, make it simple, make it cost effective. <laughs> Those are the three things. And when they see that not happening, being able to do something be able to do something about it actually have agency as, as both a professional and a human being. And when that doesn't work, then know that they can make the hierarchy work for them and work for that client. Much more interested in that than I am that somebody somebody doesn't take responsibility but sends a text to the chief exec. I've just, do, 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 this is terrible, you're awful. Do, do, do. Well, yes, that may all be true, but as two human beings, <laughs> what, what I think it's, you know, it's what's your role in this? <laughs> How can I help? But what's your role? So it's a bit more. I think it's a bit more complicated, yeah. and a bit more sophisticated than 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 Twitter. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm saying that because I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree, and it's how we plot our way through it, isn't it? it? It's definitely a medium. I think that's sort of changing the way that we Absolutely. that we understand, we engage with the public, that we engage with our staff, and and we sort of understand how our own values sort of resonate out uh, no there. Question. But it's uh, no I absolutely agree with you that this can't replace face to face or individual responsibility I, and accountability. I think it's a brand thing. I think what Twitter does is it, it can confirm, or it can damage, or it can brand experience um, but I, I, I think it makes the job of assessing values and leadership slightly more difficult because I've seen organisations get into real bother because they, they use these media as the only signal yeah. and it's just one. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you one final challenge? So, um, short response from from each of you. There's the first challenge, um, but it, from everything that we've talked about, and you know, leadership through the organisation, uh, empowering people to mm. make the right decision. Should we, as 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 the NHS, re-examine who or what we mean when we talk about leaders and leadership? And and thinking also about where do we find these leaders? How do we grow them? Do we need do we need a shift in our thinking? Where do we find new leaders? Well, all the stuff I've read said, look to the 80s. <laughs> look to all those people that were born in the 80s. Which I think is kind of a bit dodgy, really. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think you should... It is, it is attitude, aptitude, skill, still. Um, and I think it is about looking for people. I, I you know, I, 
I do think there's something about you know, a training and understanding in organisations and systems. I'm, I'm biased. You know, I trained at the Tavistock, so um, that's the SAS of OD. But I do think it's important. I would be worried about appointing someone to run a complex organisation who didn't bring with them an experience, valence, or training, preferably all three, in, in, all, in change. How, how, how do you make, you know, what is the system? Because it's so stressful, unless you know that. I feel sorry for people, actually, who try to make change in organisations. Was it um, Dr. Jean Nauman <laughs> made this point to me once, she's OD academic, who said, she said, she, and I agree with that, I feel sorry for anyone who tries to make change without that understanding or the, or the, the um, humility to get it. <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, there's um, one of those th things when we, when we talk about the NHS is uh, uh, getting the definition right to the, the, the question, really. So sometimes we think of the, the NHS as an organisation of 1.3 million people, and sometimes we think of it as a, as a system that's sort of uh, operating, and sometimes we think of it as, a, as an industry. And I think that when we're looking at solutions, we have to get that right analysis right of what it is that we're looking for. So, uh, you know, I think, for example, when we had the MRSA problem, we, we tended to think of the organisation, uh, the NHS as an organisation and had a sort of top-down approach to it. And, um, um, you know, the hand-washing and that sort of all being important, that's to work in those circumstances. But it didn't work when we looked at it in, say, IT and said, well, it's an organisation. Maybe we should have been looking at it as an industry. And I think maybe it's a similar sort of thing for us in, in leadership. A lot of sort of commentators tend to think of the NHS as an organisation and therefore there's a type of leader that you oh, need right. for the NHS as an organisation. If we thought of it as an industry, uh, the different sorts of skills, uh, requirements, the diversity that lend itself to that, uh, I think we come up with a, a broader range of solutions for the leadership challenges we face, both in terms of task uh, but also in terms of style. I'm afraid we, we've run out of time this morning, gentlemen. It just leaves me to thank you for your time, energy and input uh, this morning to what's been a really valuable uh, conversation um, and uh, to wish you a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.